everybody. Uh, this is Jason Bailey. And Michael Hall. Uh, your, your co-hosts of Fun City Cinema. You may have noticed we haven't had a new episode in a while. Uh, I don't know when we'll have another one. But if you'd like to hear us do something else, I've got good news for you. Um, as you heard on the, uh, the little trailer we dropped on this feed a few weeks back, we're doing a new podcast. Uh, it's, a, it's a conversational show. It's a chat show, if you will. Uh, but where we have on uh, fellow critics and historians and actors and filmmakers and all sorts of people who love movies. And we talk to them about movies. You know, I hate chat shows, Jason. I know. But why are we doing a chat show? Because it's good. It's fun. And it's, it's it's way less effort. We spent so much time on Fun City Cinema and it's fun. And it's yeah, but good. I don't we spent time on it because I don't like chat shows because they're fucking boring and they're just sort of like guys sitting around jerking each other off about not, you know, the same one. shit over and over. Not this one. How, how, how have you managed to conceive of a chat show? That's not terrible. Well, cause we have really good guests. You know, uh-huh. we have like some of the smartest film critics that there are. We have great film historians. We have filmmaker actors. So like, these are people who are talking about us. Like they're talking about movies from like two different sides of the camera. Who the fuck else gives you that? It's not just you and I sniffing each other's farts. Correct. And we also (laughs) have what I've been told by several people who I'm not related to is a really good premise. That premise, Mike Hall, (laughs) is... The the premise is that people pick their favorite year of movies and they come and talk to us about that year. Yes. And we talk about sort of what else was happening in movies at that time, what else was happening in the world at that time, something that you are particularly good at and I really enjoy, which is sort of contextualizing the films yep. in the larger world of that the artists who make them were living in. Yes. Right? Like recognizing that these are living, breathing people walking around in the world. Great art does not exist in a vacuum. It does not exist in a vacuum of the world that it enters into, nor, Michael Hall, does it exist in a vacuum for the viewer who takes it in. And that's what's fun about our show, which is called A Very Good Year, is that we talk about the movies, but we also talk about the world in that year. We talk about the movies that were playing alongside it. We talk about the movies that were making money while maybe the great movies weren't. We talk about the movies that were winning Oscars while maybe the great movies weren't. (laughs) But we also talk about particularly, well, no, let me take that back. We also talk about how these movies interacted with, changed formed the people that we're talking to. Sometimes it's because they were going to the movies in this year. Sometimes they were full ass adults or teens or tweens when these movies were coming out. But sometimes this is from, they weren't even born yet when these movies came out. So they tell us about how they found this year, how they found these movies, why these movies speak to them today. We do a top five list. Everybody who comes on the show walks us through their five favorite movies. We do awards winners. We do box office. We do headlines. And then we do a lightning round where we zip right through in five or 10 minutes as many more movies as we can. So it's a nice, tight format. It's not just like three people rambling for an hour. We got like segments. We got fucking theme music. Like we actually produce the sound show. effects. We got sound effects. <laughs> yes. We produce it. We just don't produce it the way we did the last one. Right. The show is called a very good year. It's on whatever podcatcher you caught fun city cinema off of. And we really think that you'll enjoy it. So go uh, check it out, subscribe. And just, just to, to pull you in, here's an episode. We're going to put a whole episode on this feed for you. We're going to reduce your labor. 
we're putting one right here. Like, like I'm going to say, here it is. And then it's just going to be there. But then when it's over, you got to go to the other feed and subscribe to hear the rest of them. But what we got here is like a, a, a real live, honest to God celebrity, like a famous ass person who came on our show, Alex Winter. Who's also a real movie lover. Who's a real movie lover. I mean, lover. like a dyed in the wool, like, like a hardcore movie. Shit. Lo- yes. He knows his shit. Yes. Pulled it on the lightning round. Alex, if you listen, if you subscribe to the show, you heard Alex talk about Death Wish 3, which he was in. But you also heard right. him talk on there about how when he started acting, and that was his film debut, he was not an actor. He was going to the Tisch School of, the, of Arts in at NYU to be a filmmaker, which is what he is now. So he knows his cinema history. And I swear to God, Alex Winter is about to school you on the year 1931. That's something I bet you didn't expect. <laughs> I bet you didn't think, wow, I'll bet the guy who's not Keanu Reeves in the Bill and Ted's movies just knows a whole lot of shit about the movies in 1931. I bet he's just a world cinema expert. Turns out he is. These are the kind of surprises that are awaiting you on our show, A Very Good Year. So give it a subscribe, give it a like, give it a rate, give it a review, give it whatever you can give it. But right now, please enjoy episode one, 1931 with Alex Winter. You have to say, here it is. Here it is. Hello, film fans, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, a a filmmaker or writer or actor or musician, basically anyone who loves movies, to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. Uh, I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And uh, our guest today for our very first show, it's a really a thrill to have this guy here, uh, first came to prominence as an actor in such films as the, uh, the Bill and Ted movies and The Lost Boys, and as we discussed on our Fun City Cinema podcast, Death Wish 3. Um, now he spends most of his time directing, and his feature credits include Freaked, Downloaded, Deep Web, Showbiz Kids, and Zappa. Uh, his new film is called The YouTube Effect. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Alex Winter. Hi, Alex. How are you? I am really well. All right. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. No, thank thank you so much for doing this. Um, you know, when we were putting together the the sort of wish list for guests, you were right at the top of it because it's like we 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 know and love Alex from from Twitter. Uh, we love him from Bill and Ted and from from his films. But I know you are deep down a big time cinephile and. Uh, and so I have to say, I actually wasn't surprised by the year you selected to be your <laughs> year for discussion this year. What year did you pick, Alex Winter, and why? I picked uh, 1931. Um, All right. And uh, it was not easy, but it was <laughs> it was weirdly like, should I go 1924? Should I go 1928? Maybe 1932? Um, and, uh, I landed on 31 because it really was a sweet spot of some of my favorite films and filmmakers. And also, um, because it, it's really, especially where it sits in the sort of the transition from silent to sound, um, and in other things that we'll get into, uh, it really speaks to the, the, the beginning of modern cinema, which is kind of a weird thing to say because it's 1931. Um, but there's so many uh, advances um, 
that happened in, in the films that year that I think are really significant, but also the movies are great. They're, it's not just film history, they're great movies. So that was kind of the round robin reason why I went for this year. But uh, it's a tough thing to pick one year for movies. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. not easy. Well, tell us a little bit about your your cinema education, because like, you know, Mike and I are both in our mid forties. So like, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, we first knew you as an actor, but mm -hmm. the more I've, I've read about you and the more we've talked. And even w when we talked to you for the last podcast, you know, you think of this as being the sort of, you know, the actor who is on set and is becomes fascinated by filmmaking and decides to be a director, but that wasn't your, your path. Was it? No, not at all. Um, I was, yeah, I was like a lot of, of filmmakers. I started, uh, I was a cinephile very, very young. Um, my parents were modern dancers and we moved from London to the States when I was really young, like five. And my mother taught dance at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, I really lived on that campus and I really lived in the movie theater um, where they showed films. I mean, that my babysitter wasn't a TV, it was a, a cinema that was playing Keaton and Chaplin and Fred Astaire and Hitchcock and, wow. you know, Todd Browning movies and art house movies. And I it was, you know, probably too young. To <laughs> you know, I had sure. that, I had that mother who was dragging me to Altman movies at seven years old. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, but they were also dancers. So, um, you know, Norman McLaren was a big part of our world and Brackage and, uh, my mom was, wow. was friends with John Cage and Merce Cunningham, and there was a lot of experimental music and film around our house. So, um, so I grew up in this very fertile environment uh, for cinema, and, and movies were really my refuge. It was uh, I started acting as a kid, but I really, I really was very fixated on film history. Quite young, I would sort of digest a lot of film encyclopedias and things like that. Um, and my, my walls in my bedroom were covered in, in pictures of old movies. It, looking back on it, it seems kind of eccentric, actually. Sure. No, I was the same way. Yeah. 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 It, a lot of the thing, you get older and you start finding all these kindred spirits. Um, yeah. I remember seeing Day for Night and there's all that great, those great shots of, of sort of young Truffaut sort of like hobbling down to like claw – uh, you know, a movie poster up from behind. And I just thought, Jesus, that is so me. That's great. There's other, <laughs> there's, there's other people in the world that are as bonkers as I am. Um, so, you know, these were the things that really captured my imagination um, at a very, very young, very young age. And, uh, and all through working on and off Broadway through my teens, I was saving money to go to film school. And so that was always my aim. Uh, and I went to NYU, I went to Tisch, and then I came out of Tisch, and that's when I acted. I was broke and needed a job and ended up, you know, very gratefully acting in a bunch of what became pretty big movies. And um, But it was feeding my film habit then as well. So I do love to act. I love, you know, it's, it's always been kind of something I care about a lot. Um, but uh, sort of my education was, was all in film. So, like, the you know, some of the films we're going to talk about today – are not the kind of, you know, Chaplin, Keaton, even Browning, but but some really experimental stuff, some really kind of daring material. 
was the, were these films that you were first exposed to in film school or, you know, was it more part of the sort of continuing to feed that appetite as you got older and these things, you know, became available to you? It, it was both. Um, some of these I saw, you know, am I saw back in the St. Louis days, um, city lights, uh, Chaplin was very important to me. Um, uh, but I think the, the, the films that I've chosen are films that have remained important to me. There are Chaplin films. I probably, I think I probably loved the kid more than anything else when I was young. And it's not actually one of my favorite Chaplin films anymore. And, and I love Metropolis and I prefer M to Metropolis now. Um, I did not see Lamite. I didn't see some of these films until well after film school. Uh, and I didn't really gain uh the appreciation that i have now for renoir um just the the absolute like top of the pantheon level appreciation um that i have now for him as just a a towering figure of of art and uh storytelling um until much later in life like i liked his movies when i was younger but i didn't really get get them in my opinion. And in fact, I didn't like rules of the game at all uh, for me. I just found it really trite and annoying for most of my film school era. Um, I still actually don't love it, to be totally honest with you. I much prefer Le Chien, which is what I chose here. I think it's a much better right. takedown of the bourgeoisie than, than rules of the game is. But um, but there are other, I mean, Renoir is, is, is absolutely one of my very, very favorites, but didn't really, I didn't really get till later. I kind of got to him after Jean Vigo, who I really did like when I was younger. Um, and it sort of led me to, to getting Renoir better. All right. Well, we're going to talk about your top five. We're going to hit, hit through them one by one, but before we do, uh, my co-host Mike Hull is going to, uh, help us contextualize the world around the cinemas in 1931. So let's do some headlines. 1931 was like a super uh, a super heavy year, it is, which is about as lightweight as a way to say that as I possibly can. Uh, and a lot of the films that are listed here and just a lot of the films that we remember from that year are international productions. Um, so, you know, it's appropriate. The, the news, you know, the international news was really what was going on. You've got um, the end of World War One, which ended the Holy Roman and the Ottoman Empire. So you've got, you know, a sort of these things that had been structuring the world for hundreds and hundreds of years were gone now. There was all these sort of new countries and there was this real sort of end of history feeling like there was a possibility of sort of building a genuinely new world for the first time since, you know, the end of the Roman Empire and the start of feudalism. I mean, it's a it's when we talk about these things, it's like on that kind of a scale. It's not just a global scale. Philosophically, it's enormous. And then You've got the Great Depression, right? Herbert Hoover is president. FDR is on his way in. You know, the the line about FDR is that he gave America a little bit of socialism in order to avoid getting a lot of it, <laughs> um, which was what happened, for instance, in, you know, the, the Soviet Union, the Russian Revolution. You know, so you've got this sort of and then, of course, Hitler is going to be chancellor of Germany very soon and is is on his way up. Um, that is a result of not just the Great Depression, but also the Treaty of Versailles and sort of the way that impacted the, the German economy. The French are still really like a big deal in a way that we can't conceive of now, um, not just sort of artistically, but militarily and, and you know, 
Um, so it's, you know, there, there really is this sort of a, fe a massive feeling of change. And a lot of people reacted to that positively, especially a lot of artists looked back into history, you know, to sort of try to understand who we are and where we're going. There was a lot of sort of pathos, you know, and 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 reading old sort of myth and reinterpreting those things. We see them that in some of these films, trying to figure out how uh, humans had dealt with change in the past. But there were also a lot of people that didn't like it. What they liked was fascism <laughs> and, yeah. you know, like heavy, hardcore Catholicism and trying to sort of keep all that um, in rain. And and so obviously those conversations are being had by artists, um, you know, first and, and maybe not first. Maybe they're right behind philosophers, but they're not far behind, you know, and sort of most effectively. And that's what we remember. Um, the uh, and then in the regular world, uh, outside of our brains, Max Schmeling is the heavyweight champ. The St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series. Twenty grand won the Kentucky Derby. And there was not a World Cup in 1931. So it was not as good of a year as it could. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, for the headlines. And now uh, let's talk through your top five. Alex Winter, what is your your number five? Well, hang on, I should ask. Actually, is this a ranked list or no, is this a? This is actually okay. it's kind of a it's sort of a thematic list. Though I, I don't want to beautiful. I don't want to overstate the amount of thought I gave this, but I did give it some. Um, gotcha. And uh, so it kind of flows in a, in, a, in a relatively specific order. It's also somewhat ranked in that M is number one, and M, if someone stuck a gun to my head, is probably in my top one or two favorite films of all time. Um, uh, and it probably it's up there with Mitsuguchi's work, who was very influenced by Lang um, and Murnau and everything that was going on in this period. But man, coming off of what Michael was just saying, it's really interesting. You can't really not start with them. Um, right. Because talk about a movie that just sums up pretty much all of what you just went through. Um, mm -hmm. You know, from the philosophy to the specifics of kind of how the world was being carved up to the nationalism, to the response to the growth of nationalism, to the some of the really hard kind of dualistic issues that people were facing within themselves. Like M to me is like, it's like notes from the underground. I mean, you, you don't have M without Dostoevsky. You don't have M without right. Kafka. You don't have M also without, um, you know, the, the hyper-nationalism that was afflicting Germany at that time. It was written by, um, you know, Lang's former lover and wife, uh, Gabriel Harbu, who had written for Dreyer and written for Murnau. Um, and she was not, you know, there's a lot of talk when you read about M that it was Lang's big, you know, I think Ebert or something, they're not wrong. I don't, I'm not sort of faulting these people sort of went on about how this was Lang's distaste for Germany. I mean, Harvey was a hyper-nationalist. She wrote, she was a, hmm. a, a member of the National Socialist Party and she went on to write full-on Nazi sympathetic movies for years. Um, and this was her script. And uh, uh, as she, you know, she wrote Metropolis as well. But you know, this is a, it's a film that's really complicated. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not just a really cut and dried critique of, of the growth of, of fascism in Germany. It, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, I think it has more in common with Dostoevsky or like uh, uh, Gorky, like the lower depths it reminds me of. Um, it's really uh, an examination of sort of the, of an underclass and how it ends up banding together in the midst of a crisis, the criminal, the, the murderer and the criminal underworld and the victims 
uh, is really, really compelling in that way. And I think, it, I think what I love about it is that it isn't black and white. It isn't cut and right. dry. It isn't cut and dried at all. It's incredibly nuanced and keeps flipping what you think is going to be its its theme up like around and around and upside down and very destabilizing in that way. Um, it's really damn good, man. I went back and looked at it again for this and I was like, geez, this movie is just so darn good in so many ways. Yeah. And that Peter Laurie performance is just is is so simultaneous. Like, the things he's doing in terms of the complexity and the nuance of that work of a character that is so chilling, but also so sympathetic, but also representative and also a metaphor, you know, like to, to work, to have a performance that works on as many levels as that one does is really sort of astonishing. It, it truly is. And it's a, a, a the thing I love about the, the cinema at this time um, often intentionally was was hyper theatrical, um, you know. And this was, I think, this was Lang's first sound movie. There's a lot of sound innovation in it, but it's not. Yeah. It, it's a very it's a very quiet movie. There's not a lot of dialogue in it. Um, it's, it's heavy on atmosphere and its use of sound. There's the famous leap motif of him singing, you know, the, the whistling, the pure, pure Gint theme, Ooh. you know, it's like you don't, you got no jaws without M, right? Um, you just, I'm sorry, but <laughs> yeah. you just don't. And uh, this whole idea of, of playing with silence when everyone else was, was looking to, to um, exploit sound and in a talky, very talky way, um, it, it Laurie's performance is very theatrical and, uh, it's almost like Kabuki or, or, or like no theater or something. It's so, it's almost abstract. Um, but it's very, very powerful. Yeah. Every time I watch it and it sort of starts, you know, in the beginning with the kids singing the song about the man coming to get you. Like every time I every time I put it on, I'm just sort of like in a way I kind of feel like oh every movie should start with some kids singing a <laughs> chorus about it. I don't know, I don't know. There's just something about it that is just really, really, really dangerous, incredibly so. sort of threatening. Yeah, the first five minutes of that film it, are absolutely jaw dropping. They're so well cut and shot. It's it's it, I mean it's a masterclass. You know, it really yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, no, the why are these kids like scaring the hell out of me? Right <laughs> now? I can't get over that. Well, I want to I, I want to get back to that idea of sound without much dialogue because that I think is a wonderful recurring theme in this list. Mm -hmm. You know that we are in a transition year where where so many of the unmemorable movies are the ones that were just pointing a camera at like a stage play and just recording talk. And there were still a handful of filmmakers, most of them in this list, international ones, who were like, no, we're not done with silent movies yet. We're not afraid of silent movie imagery and technique just yet. But we'll get back to that because the, the next film on your list is one with a fair amount of dialogue, although done uh, quite well, I think. Yeah, Le Chien is is Renoir, um, and uh, it is he made two films that year with uh, Michelle Simon. This is the 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 larger. The first is uh, Purge Baby, uh, which is 
translates as the baby's laxative, um, which is a fado <laughs> a fado farce that he made uh, with with Simone, and it's it's good. Um, uh, the uh, this movie is just unbelievably great, though, and and um, it's you know m- m- all through film school. Uh, my favorite filmmaker was Bunuel, and uh, and I just ate up everything Bunuel did. And I remember getting to La Chienne at some point and going, oh, shit, Bunuel just ripped all of his, his entire latter, <laughs> latter period career off of Renoir. But, uh, but it's, it's, this is really like the gold standard in bourgeois takedown yeah. cinema. Um, yeah. And it's so well, it is... There are certain movies, and they talk about Renoir this way. There's other filmmakers that get spoken about this way, um, that, where I think it is really valid. There are certain filmmakers that it is just like watching a miracle. I remember that's something Kurosawa said about Satyajit Ray, that it was just like watching his films like watching the sun or something like that. Mm. And and you watch this movie, you're like, how the hell does he do this? Like the the his his process with the actors, the process with the way he writes the screenplays, the way he sort of writes them based on who the actors are. And it's mm-hmm. it's miraculous. I mean, there are people like Linklater who I think do that incredibly well. I mean, there's people who have done it all through film history um, very well. Uh, Bresson uh, comes to mind, obviously. But but this is so light. It, like It's deceptive. It feels like a little fluffy pastry, but it's really acidic as hell. And it's like poison. And yeah. And not unlike M, there's aspects of Notes from the Underground. There's aspects of, of other writing of that time in terms of the underdog that, that Simone plays and looking at art. And and just so I've said it, uh, Fritz Lang remade La Chienne as a straight-up bare-knuckle noir with Edward G. Robinson in his Hollywood days. It's uh, Scarlet Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, so there, you know, so you look at Le Chien and you think, oh, this is this light, fluffy sort of, you know, co- comedy of manners, and it's really not. It's a really ballsy, brutal satire, and and pretty much of a noir in terms of where it goes. Yeah, pre noir. One of the things, one of the things that I thought that I think is really miraculous about it, I always think it's fascinating when you're watching an early sound film where they're dealing with the constraints of this, you know, of, of this technology, this bulky sort of immovable technology and having to forget kind of everything they learned about moving a camera during the silent era. Yeah. And yet you see there, there are certain filmmakers who were just not going to let that shit go. Yeah. Um, and you see that a couple of times in this movie, especially the, the scene um, where the, the dancing scene, that, that like mm-hmm. wheezy handheld camera during yeah. that, that intense and really nasty dancing scene, you know, the, the kind of sharp focus is not possible. They're, they're, you know, they're having to deal with the fact that the fam- that the camera is just going to go out of focus, but yeah. the, the emotional intensity is so present that like he clearly decided that that, that was worth it, you know, that it was okay if it wasn't technically perfect because it's so emotionally true. It's a re- that's a really good scene um, and a really good point about that scene because I, did, I didn't quite think of it in that way but 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 what it, what did strike me when I went back to look at it again was how modern this film is and oh yeah we, we were talking about this earlier but so much of 70s cinema was about discomfort you know Altman Cassavetes mm-hmm. Cassavetes I mean even what Scorsese did with King of Comedy which has some of those like excruciatingly uncomfortable scenes in cinema and heavily influenced and obviously what had come out of the, the French new wave before that and, and the German and what Herzog and German express Fassbinder was doing that really well as well, obviously um, even his super early work was very, very excruciating, but 
this is so early to be playing with things in that way. And it's, and it's exactly why I prefer this film to rules of the game, because I feel like there, there are scenes in this film, like the one you just mentioned that are just existentially discomforting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They, are, they are just, they are so modern in their discomfort. And I know literature at that time was doing that and even earlier than 1931, but you really did not see that in cinema. And the shit that Michelle Simone gets put through in this film and, and, yeah. and, and uh-huh. you know, and the sort of what it, and how you identify with them and how elegantly that's conveyed. Um, it's very, very modern and, and really heavily influences so much of, of what's to come. Yeah. Well, speaking of filmmakers who did not want to let go of the silent cinema, um, Alex, <laughs> what is the third film on your top five? Yeah, I have, a, I have a couple of silence in a row for that reason. And, and, <laughs> and, and City Lights is is Chaplin's uh, great fuck you to the sound <laughs> era. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wanted him to make a sound film. Um, uh, he started developing it when sound was huge. Uh, he was very firm in his desire to make it a silent. Uh, it's a very autobiographical film. His, his you know, beloved mother had just died, and he was completely destabilized. And there's a. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of Dickens. A lot of a lot of Chaplin reminds me of Dickens, but the the. This is kind of like his Oliver Twist in a way. It's sort of like looking, yeah. it's a dreamlike, I mean, again, talk about a modern film made in a pre-modern era. It is very, very dreamlike. And you can see why it influences Wells, it influences Kubrick, it influences Bresson, it influences Tarkovsky. It, this film has such a broad influence because it's, it is really formally very daring. Like they basically, mm. cre- they created a city, like the sets, and the design of, of the city, it's not any city that exists. It's like an amalgam of different right. c- cities around the world, but largely Chaplin's sort of memories of childhood. Um, and so he's created this massive scale dream city and and then inhabits it with a very small group of characters. And it's just an unrelentingly cinematic movie. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's really, it's giant and it's small. It's macro and micro in both of those ways. And, and, um, so it's by far my favorite Chaplin now. It, did, it wasn't for a really long time. I, it was another another one of those movies I didn't get that deeply until I was a little older. Well, and I think especially with this one, you know, it's it is so tempting, you know, when you're sort of like a you know a film snob in your twenties to to uh, to dismiss Chaplin because of the sentimentality, to you know prefer Keaton or even Lloyd because you know it's a more modern approach. But as you get older and more sentimental and turn into more of a sap, like if you can watch <laughs> the last scene of City Lights and not just completely fall apart. I don't know what you've got inside you, but it's not a heart. Like that sequence is just, it doesn't matter how many times I see it, Alex, like it will destroy me every single time. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a child and his lost mother. It's lost. It's, there's Uh, so many metaphors going on in there, but he doesn't play them as metaphor because he's a genius. So, you know, and yes, I grew up much preferring Keaton and I still love Keaton. Um, very, very much, but, 
but there is something timeless about masterful storytelling. And uh, th that's what won me over about City Lights as I was, as I was getting older, was just the storytelling is so elegant. And, uh, and it's really like a great piece of music. Everything is here. I mean, it's funny, it's sad, it's dramatic, it's scary. It's like, it, it works on all these levels. And then there's just genius routines, you know, him and the, the, the millionaire who only yes. knows him when he's drunk. It's just, yes. that's like, that's like something out of Seinfeld. Like you could see, <laughs> you know, you could see like, like Norman Lear coming up with that gag, right? Like right, I got a great right. idea, you know, and it is a great yeah. idea, but Chaplin just kills it. And, uh, yeah. So it's just a very, I mean, it's a, it, it cannot be discounted how influential this film is on every significant level, but it's also um, a great movie on its own. And I do love, you know, I was only half kidding when I said it was an FU because, you know, Chaplin was really powerful when he made it in and uh, he was very determined to make the film his way. And he ended up taking yeah. an enormous amount of the, of the gross of this film by saying to, you know, the powers that be, look, I didn't make one of these gimmicky talkies, you know, this movie's standing completely on its own merit. So you got to give me more money. And they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and one last thing I want to say about, about this film that I think is worth mentioning, because, you know, we get so rightfully um, in awe of him as a filmmaker and as a, a sort of comic mind that it's easy to actually underrate him, I think, as an actor. Mm -hmm. But that last close up in yeah. that last scene, like his coverage of himself in that scene is just incredible. The things he's doing just with his eyes is it's immaculate screen acting. Yeah, I agree. And it's sort of like some, was kind of my point about Le Chien. Um, And I think it, and certainly we we're talking about it with Laurie. Like there's a people always talk about acting um, and film acting, especially as, oh, back in the old days. Uh, everybody, right. everybody was working from the outside in and before, before the group theater and method, there was no truth in cinema. You know, it was all, yeah. it was all Olivier with a hump and Chaplin with a mustache and I, it's just such bullshit. And it's such a, it's such a misunderstanding of the artifice that is in all art. Um, and there's artifice in Cassavetes and there's artifice in Chaplin but there's so much truth in these performances in, in all of these films that are very uh, vulnerable and and subtle and nuanced and human. And uh, all the performances in La Chien are amazing. All the performances in, in this film are, are really amazing as well. All right. Well, let's keep the silent uh, vibe going then. Mm -hmm. with an, uh, what's your what's your number four? Um, I, I chose a, uh, a Brazilian film uh, called Limite uh, by a, a poet. Uh, Mario Pezzotto, who only made this film um, and then yeah. was very prolific uh, with poetry and and other uh, literature um, and even other screenplays that didn't get made. And uh, he made this, it's an avant-garde silent film. Uh, it was made when he was very young. He was in his early 20s. Um, and it's abstract. Um, it's, you know, a couple of years after Shenandelou and a year before Blood of a Poet. Uh, but it's not a surrealist movie, which is interesting. Right. It's not. It's not right. like it's not a Dada dreamscape thing. It's um, it's a very rigorous uh, avant-garde movie, but it's not you know doing your homework. It's not eating your vegetables. It's really <laughs> really beautiful. And for all of his you know philosophical distaste for the surrealist, there is a lot of very dreamlike aspects to it. Um, but it's a really beautiful film, and I've always found it very resonant. Um, and I find it is. It works as kind of a key to some of what came after him. 
you know, people like Wells and other other folks, Eisenstein, were were fans of this film. Um, but it's just a very beautiful, singular little piece of art that just shows you how modern cinema was at that time. When you always think of the sort of avant-gardist as Bunuel or, or or Cocteau or some of the other folks, Man Ray, who were working around this time. Yeah, I had, this is one of the two in your top five that I had never seen before. And so, you know, that's, to be honest, part of the fun and part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast was just like for the selfish little pleasure of getting good <laughs> film recommendations yeah. from people I respect, but, uh, and having an excuse to watch films that have been on my shelf. Like this is on my shelf. I've got the Scorsese world cinema project set and I just hadn't broken it out yet. And I did. It's breathtaking. Like it's the, 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 the imagery is, it's, it's just like, it's, it's frame after frame. That's just sort of gobsmacking. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, because we'll see this in our next one too. And like we mentioned, this is a very international list. Mm-hmm. Do you think in in your sort of studies of this era, were were international filmmakers just less interested in doing what so many American filmmakers did of just sort of abandoning imagery for the novelty of sound? I think that that. And I could be wrong. This is not coming from scholarship. This is coming from a, mm. a guess. But observation, seems, yeah, observation, yeah. It seems that the 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 commercial hub of the American industry was more dictatorial in demanding that that talkies be talky, um, right. and I think that's why Chaplin, who is sort of I guess out of everything on this list, the most kind of you know, um, I mean, he's English, but has the most sort of ang- Western mainstream sure. quality was saying, no, we're not there yet. Like, I'm not ready to abandon. S- we, we haven't done all we can do with this yet. Um, yeah. And I don't want to just turn it into theater. Um, and a lot of the American films, including, you know, the front page came out this year, street scene came out this year. Um, a lot of those films are based on plays. Um and they and you know God love them they're they're good movies but they'd probably be better on stage I you right know? and uh, and they've got quick patter dialogue and they're wall to wall talking and they have abandoned I think too quickly um, the exploration the sort of cinematic exploration um, and that's why I would I was a big Orson Welles fan when I was young because Welles was kind of like well screw that I'm gonna lean <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on atmosphere and yeah. Um, and he was taking a real page from what was going on in Europe and with theater and with film in Europe. So, and that's just more my sensibility. I mean, I like movies that are feel like movies and not like something I could just as easily see on stage or, you know, read a book. Um, yeah. And these, these filmmakers were really pushing uh, the, 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 in their, I think what they felt was the last, squeezing the last bit of juice they could out of this kind of cinema before it was unfinanceable. I mean, look at what happened to Lang. I mean, Lang right. moved over to the States and, you know, made sort of like hard knuckle noirs for the most part. And some of them are good, but they're not like M or Metropolis. I'm editing a project right now that is uh, essentially a silent film. I mean, there's things happening with the audio, but sort of the way the audio and video are being combined, it's essentially a silent film. And so this is the first, I'd never seen Lamide either. This is the first time I, and it sent me down a silent rabbit hole because I'm already sort of working on this project and just the way it's edited, you know, the editing is so different, you know, and, and like, I, 
was enjoying your list. A couple of them I had seen, but the just the whole mindset and conception around the editing and the shooting also. But it's just there's more. You spend more time with things. You know, you you have a little more sort of time to like consume the images. A little bit more sort of time and 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 room to figure out why they're juxtaposed in the way that they are um without sort of it being like you know sea dog say dog yeah right? or or the um, opposite and it, right because I, I agree with you completely and i think that's where his his sort of vocal distaste for the dada movement is really important is that you know it, it isn't just you know uh the kind of more standard American form of cutting, but it's also not this the the Boonwell Dolly or Cocteau form either, which is let's sort of let's mix it up and create random images that sort of shock the brain. Make a pile yeah. and let people pull whatever they want. Yeah, out I mean of he's it. and it's all about your mother right. and, and what dreams you had. Exactly. He's like he's like, no, he says, I am I am the creator of this of this poetic cinema and I'm going to dictate how the, this lays out in a very specific way. And I, it works here. It's very beautiful in that way. Yeah. Well, that, that sort of conversation about editing and, and, uh, and sound and image together is a, takes us very smoothly into the last film on your list, Alex. What is, uh, tell us about that one. Great. And, uh, and that is true. That is why in my little harebrained attempt to give this some form, <laughs> this is why uh, um, we're ending with enthusiasm A film I love. It's a Vertov documentary. Uh, it is after and is much lesser known than Man with the Camera. In fact, I've only been able to find this on YouTube, but it's there in its yep. ent entirety on YouTube. Um, and it doesn't like intercut with like, you know, Ryan's toys or some kind of weird influencer. You can <laughs> actually watch the whole film uh, uninterrupted. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary film. It's much maligned, actually, in critical circles. Even Vertov had kind of written it off. Um, I find this film staggeringly beautiful. And it is a, uh, a sound documentary that uh, uses sound like, and this is what is so great about it. It was actually really influential for in a very subtle way uh, for what we were playing with with Zappa uh, when we did it, which was trying to take sound and, and use it as a, uh, as a kind of score, as opposed mm. to, to things just being represent, representational for what they are. And it's very revolutionary in that way. Like he's really doing, it's, I think of it the way the futurists were painting, you know, 10, 20 years before this. This is like a, a futurist, examination of, of, uh, you know, unfortunately of a Stalin exercise in Donbass, Ukraine. Right. Um, the, the politics of it are, 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 are somewhat, uh, dismaying. Um, but <laughs> Hashtag as a, problematic. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, yes, he would, Veritov would be, this film would be canceled if it were released today. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it is staggeringly beautiful and it sounds beautiful and, uh, it's, it's extremely, uh, well-crafted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, this, this one again was new to me as well. And, but of course I'd seen man with the movie camera, the way he uses sound, um, not to compliment, but sometimes even to sort of, uh, jarringly, uh, fight the image 
is I think what's what's extraordinary and is something that you don't see in a lot of a lot of films then or now this idea that they don't have to be necessarily in in smooth communication with each other but could in fact it can in fact be a bit of a battle and see who wins almost I mean I'm really inspired by that in terms of documentary filmmaking and that can be that can that approach can be um can influence your narrative. Uh, it's sort of like I was saying about uh, about M and how it's often represented as an anti-German, anti-Nazi film, though it was made essentially essentially by written by a Nazi. Um, uh, it, it, you know, you can create a kind of a, a self-conflicting uh, machine that destabilizes the audience in a way. And you can do that with theme or you can do that in, in Vertov's case, literally with audio um, in conjunction with imagery. And... I find that very inspiring because it works. Like he's got a theory. He's got, there's method to the madness. He's not just throwing yeah. shit at the screen. Um, right. And he took it very seriously. And he's also a brilliant artist. So he did it in a very effective way. Great. Well, as you mentioned, yeah, that one, uh, we always try to try to give people heads up. Uh, you can watch that one in its entirety on YouTube and pretty good print. I thought what I, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah. It's totally watchable. Yeah. Yeah. And as of, as of my last, the last time I checked, the other four were all streaming on the Criterion channel. They are. Um, and, yeah. And some of them are restored. Uh, the Le yeah. Chien, I think is the restored and the Le Chien also has the hour long Jacques Rivette. Uh, interview with Renoir and Simone from the 60s, which is a gold mine where they talk about their career together and the making of, of the film. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And all of those also available on Criterion Blu-rays as well. Right. All right, Alex, that's a hell, hell of hell of a top five. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that all of these were not tremendous uh, commercial successes or Oscar winners. The story of my uh, life, but, dude, right this, there. This award <laughs> list is so fucking boring after that. After what he just ran down, oh my god! But uh, yep. Mike is going to walk us through uh, 1932's Oscar-winning films and also uh, some of the uh, the the domestic uh, top ten for for 1931 as well. Mike. Sell out. With me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. The Oscar winners are a mess uh, this early in their history for our purposes. Jason, do you want to explain this a little bit? I feel like you, like, why was it like this? At the beginning, they weren't going by the calendar year, which is very inconvenient for us. Um, now now <laughs> they do, you know. And Thanks, they Academy. They, they changed that fairly early, but at this point, they were basically, it, was, it wasn't the calendar year. It was more like the sort of school year. Um, so the fourth Academy Awards were given to films that were released between, it's like August of 1930 and, uh, the end of July of 31. And then the fifth Academy Awards were for films released between, like, uh, on August 1st, 31 through July 31st, 32. So we went through and checked uh, out the ones that, that were like the Electoral College in, of the Oscars. It's a mess. Yeah. So, but we went through and found that the 1931 films that were honored in both of those, in both of those ceremonies in the major categories. Best Picture, Cimarron by RKO. Best Director, Norman Taurog for Skippy. Did I say his name right? Yeah. It, he's dead. It doesn't matter. Best Actor, Lionel Barrymore. We got an early, uh, early statue for the Barrymores for A Free Soul. And uh, Marie Dressler won Best Actress for Men and Bill. I got to admit, I've never seen Men and Bill. Alex, thoughts on any of those films, if, if you've seen them? I got nothing on those, sorry. Nothing like, on those. Nada. I mean, 
I mean, this is the thing that I have found, especially with these early ones, is you go through the movies that were actually, that were awarded at the time, either with money or awards, and rarely they're ones that have actually persevered, which makes me sort of feel good about some of the recent Oscars and, and, and hits. Uh, Mike, what, what won the awards at the fifth Academy Awards? Best actor was Wallace Beery for The Champ and Frederick March. Somehow for Dr. Jekyll and now Mr. Now we're getting somewhere. Yep, that, was, Best. that was a tie that year. A- Alex, you've uh, I've seen these films. Have you seen I these? I have. Very much so. I love, and I love Wallace Beery, and I love, love, love Frederick March. Love him. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Jekyll and Hyde performance. I mean, like, so good. for a while there, that was just like how you got an Oscar was by doing yeah. Jekyll and Hyde, because this was like <laughs> 10 years before Spencer Tracy did it and, and crushed it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Best actress was Helen Hayes for The Sin of Madeline Claudette. And best director is Frank Borzage for Bad Girl, which is not nearly as much of an exploitation film as it should be. <laughs> or yeah. sounds like, yes. Yeah. And Helen Hayes was in Aerosmith that year, the Ford movie as well, which is one I have yes. seen. Yes. Oh well, well here here you go. You'll be you'll be happy to hear about that one at least. Mike, uh, what what did the uh, what did the domestic box office look like that year? Number one was City Lights with two million, so Yay! a crossover between uh, a genuinely good movie <laughs> and uh, commercial success and our podcast. Number yeah. two is Trader Horn with one point six four million. It's an adventure movie by W. S. Van Dyke three years before The Thin Man. Uh, number three was Palmy Days with 1.6 million, a musical comedy starring Eddie Cantor. How much did it cost to see a movie at this point? Like a penny and <laughs> like, a half? Like a nickel or something, yeah. I feel like 1.6 million is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, number four was The Man Who Came Back with 1.4 million, Raul Walsh drama starring Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell. Uh, number five was a tie between Merely Marianne with 1.3 million, a Henry King comedy drama starring... The aforementioned Ms. Gaynor and Charles Farrell. Again. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde made uh, 1.3 million. Frederick March, previously mentioned, uh, directed by Ruben Mamoulian. Yeah. Which is he was, my new hotel sign-in name. Ruben Mamoulian. Mike, you remember we watched that movie Applause for Fun City Cinema. Like, this was another guy yeah. like, uh, like Renoir who was, who was really trying to still like move the camera and do interesting stuff even when even when the technology wasn't quite ready to yet yeah man and well this is a question like do you think the fact that we have better technology for it now when you see those shots does it make you feel like oh like that's a fucking mess because they didn't have a steady cam because to me it makes me feel like the balls on these yeah. guys to try anyway yeah how close they got yes. like i'm actually really the fact that we can see it now properly i when i see those old shots i reinterpret them with a steady and give them all the props yes. that they deserve <laughs> I, had that I, piece I love of equipment. feeling the camera moving like you it happens in hitchcock yes. all the time it happens in sunset boulevard it's, it's always very satisfying i feel like you when yep. you really feel the whole machinery behind the shot grinding its way from one shot to another or yeah. one focal yeah. length to another it's very satisfying yeah no, I I love the fact that in rope, like you actually can see the the stitches, but you like you're like good for you for trying, Alfred Hitchcock. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Number six is uh, was mentioned Aerosmith with one point two five million. John Ford directing Ronald Coleman. Alex, I knew this was one you you uh, wanted to to touch on briefly as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, these are these are all pre-code movies, obviously. Um, it's sure. not my favorite Ford, but I think all Ford is really important. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, you can see, in terms of what I was saying before about handling talky stories, Ford is such mm. a mas- master uh, visually that he somehow makes this visually interesting, even though it is a, a lot of yakking. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that was what I have to offer there. <laughs> Putting some miles on those microphones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number seven, the Connecticut Yankee, 1.2 million. It's a, it is an adaptation of the Mark Twain book starring Will Rogers. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that, but I'm really tempted just by that one little stat there. Is has anybody got a a review of that one for I you? I don't. I haven't seen that. I have. Yeah. I have not seen as much Will Rogers as I w- as I would like to, just because I'm fascinated by him. Yeah. Uh, number eight was Cimarron with one point one two million. It's a Western epic directed by Wesley Ruggles. Uh, won the big award. Number nine was Bad Girl. There was some real crossover here. One point mm-hmm. one million uh, pre code drama directed by Frank Borzaghi. Uh, and number 10 was Possessed with 1.031 million, a number so specific, I assume it's connected to a tax dodge and is an actual <laughs> literal uh, pre-code drama starring Joan Crawford and Clark Gable. Which is a good looking. So like a yeah. pretty steamy movie as I, rec- I, it's been a while, but I recall that as pretty as, as it lives up to what you want. Yes. It's Crawford it is, and Clark Gable. Yes. It's very much a pre-code drama. Um, all right. So there's, so yeah, that's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a, a, a couple of movies that, that, that made it, uh, made it through the decades on that top 10 and, and several that we have forgotten about. Um, all right. So now Alex, if you're ready, we're going to do a little lightning round. Yep. Um, a few more of, of the 1931 releases of note, uh, which you may or may not have seen and you can just pass if you haven't, but if you've seen it, tell us a little, little something thought or two, if you'd like. Uh, we're going to put 10 minutes on the clock and here we go. Uh, street scene by King Vidor. Yeah, this is, I actually really do like this. Round of applause. Yeah. Round of applause for King Vidor. Yeah. Sorry. All right, I'm done. <laughs> I, I do like this movie. This is, I have yeah. a list of like five additional films from this year that I, that I do enjoy. That is one of them. Um, it is written, uh, it is taken from a play um, and it is, very theatrical. There was a lot of talking, um, but it's very, very well acted, very well written. And it's all, the set is really cool. Um, and it's sort of uh, the beginning of, of creating movie sets out of kind of a theater world. West Side Story did it very famously much later um, to create a, a milieu that, that's somewhat realistic and somewhat not realistic. That's what I liked about it. Uh, so I like street scene. The, the New York backlot, uh, on the, on the set that we talked a lot about in, on the other pod. Um, also a big year, the kickoff of universal horror, 1931, uh, started early in the year with Todd Browning's Dracula. This is maybe the first movie I ever loved. Browning was really was like my first infatuation as a kid. Uh, that and Freaks um, and other films of his. Uh, uh, but Dracula is a, is a really beautiful film. It's extremely well shot. Uh, I'm a huge Todd Browning fan. And uh, I do think Lugosi is a little, I hate to say it, sounds really mean. He's a little stiff. Um, I was a big Lon Chaney person and the film was, he kicked oh. the bucket before he was able to do this and he was supposed to do this. Um, 
and I probably would have preferred it with Lon Chaney, but it is, but I love what Browning does and the other performers are, are really great. It's a, it's a really good movie, I think. Thoughts on the, uh, on the Spanish version directed by George Melford, which has become a bit of an item of its own. I, I don't think I've seen that in a really long time. Um, I don't have anything to offer there other than I really love Blackula. If we're going to go down that road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so also out at the, uh, later on in that year, the continuation of universal horror in 1931, uh, James Wells, Frankenstein. I, again, a uh, huge, huge fan. I didn't love him as, as much as Browning coming up, but I, I love this movie. Um, and I started like painting, I started getting latex and actually turning myself into things oh, wow. with latex when I was very young. Wow. Ba based on my love of Boris Karloff and the Hammer films and Cushing and all of that jazz. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I love J J James Whale. And I also, um, again, I hope this doesn't sound really uh, horribly problematic, but I think that you know, being openly gay at that time uh, and making these types of films about these almost blown up movies about outsiders and, you know, being literally pitchfork showing up and trying to, there's, there's so many obvious metaphors in this for me um, with what was going on in, in the gay community at that time, obviously done in a very operatic way. Uh, yeah. But it's a, it's a really great movie and um, it's really beautifully directed. Yeah. Also that year saw the kickoff of uh, the Warner Brothers uh, gangster movie cycle uh, with Little Caesar. Yeah, I mean, this was on my list. This is really, I almost put this on my top five. I, I'm a huge, wow. huge fan of this film. Um, it is, you, you, you have nothing that came from it. And they, people talk about, you know, noir starting um, post-World War II, um, which you just go and watch Little Caesar and you can debunk that pretty quickly. Um, but it's, it's just a very bare knuckle movie. It's, it's a shockingly intense film for its time. And, uh, and everyone in it is, is ferociously good, just ferocious. And I like Marvin Leroy. I like Gypsy too. Um, yeah. so, um, it's a very entertaining film as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then out that very same year in the gangster cycle, we had the public enemy, another sort of iconic gangster movie. Yeah, with Cagney and and I love it. I I um I, I love James Cagney and I I prefer uh I prefer um Little Caesar to Public Enemy personally. I just it's just a great is a perfect little mean little Swiss watch of a, <laughs> of a yeah. gangster movie. Pack packs a little bit more of a punch, but still Yeah, still it's not so operatic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and I've never seen this one, but also that same year we had the only Cagney Robinson collaboration, which was a film called Smart Money. Have you seen this one? I haven't seen Smart Money. Yeah, I got. Yeah, I, I can't neither. offer anything on that. Yeah. The front page, as you mentioned, also came out that year. Yeah. Um, you know, very theatrical. Great, obviously, firecracker dialogue. I wouldn't really. Again, I don't mean to you know, rain on anyone's parade. I don't really think it, it's more of a play than a movie, but it's, yep. you know, it's good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a movie. His Girl Friday is just so great. Yeah. So I much better. It's, yeah. It's so much better. So it's yeah. so easy to just underestimate the front page. Yeah. Uh, also, also out that year, we had uh, Indiscreet directed by Leo McCary directing Gloria Swanson. I like it. I forgot that was 1931. I like that movie. I love her. Um, I like him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I like that movie. 
Uh, also out that year from uh, from Germany, a film that I saw for the first time a couple of years ago that kind of knocked my socks off, Madchen in Uniform, directed by Karl Freulich. Have not seen um, it. An amazing, um, <laughs> very pre-code uh, girl school story with some heavy uh, sapphic overtones. Love it. Um, Go- going on the list. <laughs> also out in 1931, the Marx Brothers in Monkey Business. Alex, where do you land on this one? I mean, again, that almost made my my top five, but it's just unfair because it's just nowhere near their best movie. Um, but I'm I'm just a Titanic fan of theirs, yeah. and uh, you know, it's such great stuff. It, it was it, it's it's again, it, it's one of those those movies that feels almost more like a vaudeville review than a perfectly made film, which they figured out um, how to do better than that. But uh, it's great. I enjoy it. I, I mean, I really love all their films so much. I do too. I love this one so much because it's one of the few where they're all together, all from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and Groucho's stuff with Thelma Todd is just so I mean, great. I, I love Thelma Todd so much and their scenes together are just like electric. There's such a great funny, but also sexy chemistry between them. Yeah, I agree. It's great. Um, also that, uh, 1931, Ru- the aforementioned Ruben Mamoulian directed city streets that year. I think I'm, I like him and I've seen his work. I can't remember this one, so I can't comment on it. I, I, I gotcha. feel like I've seen it, but I, it's not it's not ringing any big bells for me. This year saw the release of the original 1931 The Maltese Falcon with Ricardo Cortez, B.B. Daniels, and the aforementioned Thelma Todd, uh, which I think is kind of a fascinating movie just in terms of the pre-code version of that story. Yeah, I've always wanted to see this because I love the, you know, the famous one so much. Um, but uh, I haven't ever seen it. Um, and I love the, you know, I love the author. So it's all. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, a, a really interesting D.W. Griffith movie out in 1931 called The Struggle. Um, not one of his best loved films, but really fascinating because it was shot in on the streets in the Bronx because, uh, and it was one of the first sort of sound films that was shot on location in New York. So that, that's one that I sort of have a a soft spot for. It's an interesting film. And then, uh, two by, uh, two by GW Pabst. We had, uh, Kamrud Shaft and the three penny opera both came out in 1931. Yep. I've seen the three, his three penny opera. I haven't seen the other one. Um, how is how is Three Penny Opera? Because that's okay. one I've always meant to see. Yeah, it's okay. It's not. Um, um, I it, it, I don't again. I don't want to speak out of school. If I remember correctly, it was the it was very contentious between Brecht and he, and I think Brecht mm. dis, disowned it. If I'm not incorrect, um, there's so many uh, attempts at that at that story, obviously, um, and Brecht was not an easy person <laughs> to work with. Um, <laughs> So shocking, I, shocking. Yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not poised to tell the story properly, but that's my vague <laughs> recollection of, of what happened there. I think they changed endings. I think they made it, you know, they smoothed edges. It was, I think it's one yeah. of those things. Wouldn't it be fun? Brecht turns out is an alienating figure. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Yeah. Sorry. All right. Well, that is our lightning round. You did very well, Alex Winter. Your your uh, your classic film knowledge is uh, is impressive, uh, and uh, and we thank you so much for coming on and doing this with us and talking about old movies late on a Monday night. Uh, before <laughs> we go, is there is there anything you would like to uh, to plug, promote, 
push uh, of yourself or or of anyone else? Uh, how about it? I don't think so. I think uh, you know we we just we just finished showing our YouTube movie at Tribeca. It went great. We're going to do some more festivals and then roll out later this year. But it's really not going to be out for a bit. So. Uh, it gives me time to Can, hang out with the kids and watch movies, which is what this gave me a a good excuse to do. So, hey, that's awesome. Can you just real quick? Can you because you mentioned this film vaguely when we spoke for the for the Fun City podcast? What is the YouTube effect about? I mean, aside from you know the obvious, what's in the title? It's a documentary that looks at the uh, specifically at. Google and YouTube uh, and their influence and the implications of their power and their sort of monopolized power on the planet. Um, it's not all negative by any means. We're sort of it's a kind of all-encompassing examination, but it's critical. Uh, and it's doing that, you know, like most of my docs through people. Um, so we have kind of a core ensemble of characters from very key parts of that world uh, that all come together to tell one story. And uh, so it was, it was made all through COVID, which was very challenging because um, I'm usually in, in the trenches with my subjects all over the place. And it was all remote shooting. I was literally on a monitor in, you know, from Taiwan to to here. Um, but uh, but I'm really grateful for the folks that we got. We got a very vulnerable, uh, open uh, uh, participation from the subjects. So. Uh, yeah, we had a great, a great premiere. I was really happy with it. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't set out to make something dark. I think at times it does play like a horror film, which wasn't exactly, <laughs> exactly my intention. Um, but it's not, you know, super anti-tech. None of my tech docs are really super anti-tech. I really think there's a lot there that's helpful. It's just, um, we're in a very critical juncture and it was kind of an opportunity for me to dive in to the degree that I could into what was going on. Uh, politically and sort of in the world at, at this time, you know, through tr end of Trump, into COVID right. and this very critical period we're in now where um, things are so out of balance and uh, it's so important what information people get and how they get it. And that was kind of a driver for why I stopped and did it. That's great. That's This is not the first movie you've made about sort of the implications of tech and and, you know, about sort of people who are thinking deeply about this stuff and trying to understand it. And I mean, why, what is it? Why do you think this is sort of consistently fascinating to you? Um, I mean, A, it's an area I've been in since the eighties. So it's an area of interest to me. And I know people in it from like the, the people who funded Google and, and Facebook at the beginning to the black hat hackers and outsiders and radicals and the cypherpunks. It's kind of a landscape I've known a very wide swath of significant people in, um, so I have access, uh, in that way. And I also have an understanding as a layman, um, of what's going on in an arena that I think is wildly misunderstood and, uh, and often either, um, uh, hyper evangelized, uh, or, um, or, uh, demonized. It's, it's so, it's so black and white and like anything else, the truth is not at all black and white. It's sort of like what's going on with crypto right now where it's, 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 Yes, most of what's going on in crypto is is horrible, and uh, but there there are things about what's going on in that space that are fundamental fundamental to our lives today, which people really don't like having to admit. Um, but it's true. So um, I really, uh, as a documentary filmmaker, period, I like getting into the grays of these things. Sort of like I said about M, you know, 
Um, oftentimes you can watch a doc and go, oh, well, is it siding with crypto? It's like, well, right. no, no, it isn't necessarily. If you actually pay attention, um, there's nuance there and it's, and it's almost, it's internally contradictory. And, uh, I like stories that are paradoxical. It's why I like making Zappa. Zappa was a, an inherently self-contradictory artist. Um, and I think you get to kind of the essence of, of what human beings are when you strip away the <laughs> the sort of biased black and white, you know, hero or villain shit, right? Um, and that's what YouTube effect kind of is. It's sort of like, you know, you may look at it and go, oh God, it's so pro YouTube. Or you may look at it and go, oh God, this is such a condemnation of all technology. Um, it's kind of both and neither, really. I love it. I can't wait to see it, man. And we should also mention, you know, you mentioned Zappa. Mike and I are both huge fans of that movie. Uh, oh, thank if you. If you'd like if you guys are listening and you haven't seen it, you should, uh, you can rent it or buy it at all of the usual digital outlets, but it's also streaming on Hulu and through canopy. If you've got a, a membership through that, yes, the blessed uh, canopy who I love. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Alex, people can follow you on Twitter at winter. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They gave me, they, they blessed, they handed me that for some reason though. If you think about it being a season, isn't necessarily the, <laughs> the gold mine that you think it would be. Um, but, uh, yeah, winter on, in, on that and, uh, um, a couple other places, I think. All right, man. Th seriously. Thank you so much for doing this, man. We really do appreciate it. It was a lot. Uh, of fun. Always great to chat with you. Always, always anytime. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. When I was 17. It was a very good year. All right, so we played the whole thing for you. You didn't have to do shit, but now we need you to do shit. It was good, right? It was good, right? Wasn't it? Wasn't he? Isn't he like? Yeah, it was good. Astute and yeah. like he he like he knows his stuff and he's electrifying and like his enthusiasm is infectious. And don't you just want to go watch all of those movies from 1931 that he talked about? Not a normal chat show. No fart smell. It's really not. It's really not. So please use the little plus button. Use the search bar. Use whatever you got to use on what you're listening to this on right now. A very good year. Make sure you get the A in there. It's the Sinatra song. It's a whole thing. A very good year. Plus add, subscribe, download. Got about five or six up now. And enjoy. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening to this one and the next one. Okay, bye. It was a very good year.